This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Under One Blue Roof, your podcast exploring the problem of climate-driven homelessness. Here, we ponder some of the big questions about housing, social justice, planetary boundaries and more, and listen to stories from experts in the field who explain just how it's all related. Let's get to know the human face of climate change. Hi, and thanks for joining us under One Blue Roof. I'm your host, Marushka Soldana, a Master of Environment student and social enterprise practitioner. Today, we're exploring social sustainability in the property sector. And I would like to welcome to the show, Tim Wheeler. Tim is the National Policy Manager at the Property Council of Australia. He has spent the last decade working in advocacy, sustainable policy and startups and has also worked in policy with the Green Building Council of Australia. Prior to that, Tim was co-founder and CEO of Barker Bespoke, an analyst in building energy efficiency for the International Energy Agency, National Sector Manager with Standards Australia, and Senior Policy Officer with the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency. Tim is a whiz in all things sustainable finance and ESG and is a strong advocate for public policy being designed with sustainability at its centre. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Really excited to chat with you today about ESG and what that means, not just for property, but for investment more broadly, for corporates and business, and definitely for the community sector. There's a lot of intersection and, and work that's happening across the board. And so we will get into that. I know that you've spent a little bit of time in Canberra recently doing some meetings and some work there. How does it feel to be back in Sydney, back home? It feels fantastic. We have had some pretty ordinary weather and all the roads are flooded near my house. Um, Aside from that, there's no place like home and it's great to be back. Um, But yeah, to your point, it was a great trip to Canberra recently. I had an opportunity to discuss circular economy aspects with the office of Tanya Plibersek, who has responsibility for that. And we're looking to get an initiative up and running to drive better circular outcomes for the the built environment um, going forward. So uh, lots going on, a very active federal government at the moment and uh, a very proactive agenda. Home, you mentioned, being Sydney, is understood very differently by different people and We know it's that sense of belonging and identity. It's where one lives permanently and it defines us as part of a family or a household or part of a larger community. It's really about relationships and that might be to people or to place. But really having a home base is important. It's where we lead our lives and where we go for comfort and for safety. What do you think about when you hear the word home? This is going to sound very unproperty council of me, Mariska, but for me, I spent uh, 10 years growing up in Zimbabwe, then 10 years growing up in France, and now I've been in Australia for 15 years. 
And I have a very strong connection to Australia. I have a very strong connection to France um, because that's where the people that I, I, my friends and family that I love and, and know, they live across those two countries. Almost everybody I knew from Zimbabwe has left due to some very bad political problems there. And so for me, home is really where the people that you love live. I am constantly split between France and Australia. It, it's not to me about necessarily the, the house that you live in, although, of course, you, you need to have that aspect um, taken care of, but it's really about being around the people that, that matter to you. It is a bit hard having spent so much time in two different areas because it means that you will never be with everybody that you want to be with at the same time, and you're always missing part of those people. I haven't had the pleasure of living overseas for an extended period of time, but I do know what you mean about having family and people you care about in different places. For me, it's the US and India. My family's kind of split between the two, but it does mean that you get to hopefully visit and, and travel a lot and maybe go back to some of those places every now and then. It certainly does. So the Property Council of Australia is the peak body for the property industry, representing the interests of owners, developers, investors, and many more stakeholders. Property has always been considered this growth asset class with high returns on both capital growth and income. And we know it being aligned to this Australian dream of home ownership. But as we also know, housing is becoming increasingly unaffordable and more Australians are at risk of falling into poverty and housing stress. Those are really very real circumstances for many families and, and many individuals right now. Can you tell us about the work the Property Council is doing to influence progress on affordable housing and tackle issues like homelessness? Absolutely. And there's a lot going on in that space. The latest thought leadership piece that we've released in this area is called A Stark Reality. And it takes a look at the, the market as it stands um, and some of the government frameworks and policy reasons that have led us to this time of low supply and, and unaffordability. I think it, it goes without saying that every Australian deserves access to a home and a home that is safe, affordable and fit for purpose. This is really the mantra that was built into this report that we made. Um, and it's something that does propose a, a number of solutions to try and make things better going forward. Perhaps I could start by outlining some of the very stark statistics that illustrate where we are currently in Australia, across Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, including Perth as well. The number of apartments built in 2024 will only be 21% of those built in 2018. So there is a very severe issue with the supply of new housing coming online that doesn't necessarily align with our population growth and the projections in that space. If we keep going the way that we're going and the, the um, projections turn out to be right, by 2060, we'll have um, close to 40 million people living in Australia. That means 13 million more than the people who call Australia home today. And we need to ensure that we have that vital supply of housing to accommodate those new arrivals and that population growth that we'll see locally. There are a number of solutions that we put forward in, in that report, and I'd be happy to run you through those. There was a, a survey that looked into the affordability of over 92 cities across the world. 
and um, Sydney in particular came in as the second worst on that list um, globally. So we have a lot to do here and um, we need to, to take action to change it and not keep going with this failure that we've seen across the housing supply, but also the affordability aspects. There is a lot in that. And right now there are, I, th- I think, approximately 600,000 social and affordable homes that make up the shortage that we know exists currently. And that's projected to grow exponentially in the next 20 years to over a million. And those numbers are probably out of date because we haven't yet got the new statistics from the most recent census. So it's a huge issue and it's something that's affecting a lot of Australians right now. Perhaps part of that solution is ESG, environmental social governance, and it's such a hot topic right now in the property sector. Everyone wants to know about it and know how they can do it. And I think that's a really pleasing thing to see because not only must property be built sustainably, but it also should improve the lives of those that live in and around it. Where did ESG come from and how has our understanding of it evolved over time? ESG really is having a moment um, right now and we're hoping, a lot of people are hoping and and, um, it looks like it is going to go this way, that the the increased attention and focus that it's got will be enduring in time and it's becoming integrated in, in a lot of what we do. In the property sector, the commercial property leaders in Australia are actually world leaders when it comes to sustainability. There are international indices that rate the sustainability of portfolios, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, for instance, or uh, GRESB, which stands for the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. And for the past 12 consecutive years, Australian companies have topped those indices. So in the commercial space, we have a a very good reputation uh, globally for the sustainability of our buildings. But that just isn't true in the residential side of things, um, including things like social housing and community housing and affordable housing. So we need to to really focus on the residential sector in in Australia. The concept of ESG started with John Elkington in the mid-90s. He came up with the concept of the triple bottom line. This was the first sustainability-related framework that was applied to businesses and it took an approach that was meant to balance people, planets, and profit. The challenge with that one is that it tended to always fall in favor of profit. So people and planet were often disregarded in that. And actually in 2018, John Elkington, the the fellow who who invented that, recalled the triple bottom line as a concept, saying that it wasn't suitable to deliver the radical change that we need in that space. So from there, we took on the idea of creating shared value This was something that got a lot of attention in 2008 during the global financial crisis. And this system really sought to integrate shared or or integrated value to optimize stakeholder value. And in this setup, the environment and society were considered stakeholders. And it was made to shift rather than just returning um, uh, financial gains for shareholders. It really elevated um, environment and society. But it became evident that doing our fair share was actually not enough to address the challenges of the 21st century. Enters ESG and and the concept of net positive as well. So we then saw the mainstreaming of ESG, which has just gone through the roof, especially since COVID. 
this approach really sought to enhance the positive outcomes of its predecessors of, of shared value and triple bottom line in a way that we can maximize good outcomes for both the environment and societies. And it introduced for the first time the idea of, of the net neutral or you know the net zero that we talk about in the emissions sector and do your fair share towards a, a regenerative industry. But I think going forward, I think a lot of organizations are going to take even more than doing your fair share and see if they can you know, become nature positive or, or carbon positive. Investors will start demanding it as well. So um, getting the finance sector behind it will be a, a key in, in uh, unlocking a lot of the positive benefits there as well. One of the sustainable development goals is specifically about sustainable cities and communities. Do you think that is driving the kind of progress that we need to see in the property sector right now? Is that something that's top of mind for investors and developers and everyone else who's working in this space? It certainly is um, for the Property Council and um, our members. So it's something that we really ingrain very firmly in what we do. An example is that over 90% of our large corporate leaders have got net zero targets by 2030 or before. So nobody's even talking about 2050 anymore. That's the national target. But we've acknowledged that we can go faster and further than other sectors. And so we're taking steps today to reduce the embodied carbon. So all of that carbon that's built into building materials in the construction process. We're electrifying a lot of our processes. So we're removing natural gas from our buildings and we're using electric equipment running on renewable electricity which effectively is a net zero building um, as of today. And we have a number of our members have already achieved that at a portfolio level. So uh, we're leading very well in, in the commercial sector, but I think the, the focus of, of perhaps this conversation should be more on residential, where we have very poor energy efficiency in our homes. A lot of our homes are you know, too hot in summer, too cold in winter. They carry health implications as well for residents, and they're emitting way more greenhouse gas emissions than they need to. So many levers that the government can pull and that um, the property sector can deliver to make sure that we have better quality housing that keeps people in cheaper because they, they don't need to spend as much on, on electricity. It's healthier because they're not too cold or too hot, um, and it's much better for the environment as well. So there are a few policies that the government could deliver in that space. One of them would be just the basics of, of having a, an energy rating scheme for homes. Today, when you buy a television or a washing machine, you can see the number of stars that it has, and you know how efficient it is. When you buy a home, you don't have any of that support. So for the largest investment that most Australians will make in their lifetime, they have no idea how that's going to perform uh, from an energy perspective. So if the government could accelerate the development of a rating scheme for homes, that would be a, a very good first step. It will then allow councils to provide faster approvals for homes that have got um, green ratings. It will allow banks to provide better mortgage rates for more sustainable homes and it will allow customers to choose that and, and create that economy of scale in, in an industry. So lots to be done in that space, and we are working on it at the moment. I think that leads in very well to my next question around social sustainability. And I want to shift the conversation there because to date, the property industry has given considerable attention to responding to this threat of climate change, which is very real and extremely urgent particularly around reducing greenhouse gas emissions, air pollution and water and waste management. 
we're now seeing a paradigm shift toward not only measuring environmental impacts in our built environment, but also the social outcomes of development and projects that are coming up around our communities in order to determine the overall success of what those projects deliver. Could you take us through what social sustainability actually looks like in practice? Because it's a little bit mysterious, I think, to a lot of people who might be listening. And what does this mean for communities more broadly? The property sector's credentials um, very much started with the E of ESG, but more and more, and I think COVID was really a catalyst for this, we're starting to focus on the S component. So the the social um, of environment, social and governance is really um, the people component of what we're talking about. At the end of the day, all of the placemaking, all of the buildings that the industry delivers, they're for people to work in, to live in, to travel to, they are to accommodate people. And so we need to make sure that everything that we are delivering across the board is suitable and delivering positive outcomes for the residents and, and occupants. What we discovered when we first approached this conversation was that there was no common understanding of what social sustainability means across the property sector. So lots of people were were doing um, small initiatives here or there, but there was no real understanding of of where we should be driving. It's a very difficult issue to to quantify and to to measure because unlike carbon, where you can have um, tons of CO2 per year and it's just a a nice neat number on on the page, Um, When we talk about social sustainability, it's about how people perceive an area or a development. It's about the feelings that they have before and after it was constructed. Examples could be um, a project that just doesn't receive the support of the community. That can have a very negative impact. If you design it in a way where women don't feel safe walking at night because there isn't enough uh, security measures or, or lighting, all of those aspects should be considered in social sustainability. Access for people with disabilities, just to make sure that people can have dignified access to the built environment when we design it. So it's very, very multifaceted, and it's something that the property sector has turned their minds to to try and uh, improve over time. We decided that the the first way to make change is to try and measure social impact across the, the property sector. We developed a framework called the Collective Social Impact Framework, And this was aimed at measuring across the property sector as a whole what the social sustainability impact had been. It's very difficult to have a a comprehensive set of metrics there because um, it is such a a varied topic. So what we did is we engaged KPMG to do some very deep consulting for us and to establish what would be the key factors that we should target first. The framework itself is established with three main pillars – inclusive communities, healthy places, and responsible growth. And under each of those, we have a set of metrics that our members report against and that we can then agglomerate and de-identify and provide that baseline of data for the sector more broadly, which is important because it provides individual players with an understanding of where they sit in comparison to the rest of the industry. For instance, let's talk about access to active lifestyle infrastructure or green spaces. A lot of developments would include that and make sure that it is available for their residents. Um, Some may not. And so they would look at this data set and say that 95% of people are providing this. Um, Why aren't we doing it as well and, and making sure that we get those good outcomes for our residents? 
and it provides people with a very good set of evidence base that they can take to their executive to then ensure that they also go down that path in the future. We've actually also included affordable housing in that, so to, to incorporate affordable housing as part of new developments. It's a, a measurement tool to see you know, how much is actually being put out there. And this is important because it will deliver a, a supply of, of housing that is necessary for, for key workers in, in key places who've been priced out of the existing markets. That is really exciting. The social dimension of property and the built environment has always been there and to see it able to be quantified and measured to start really getting people along for the journey because when you can have data that tells you what's good to do when it comes to development, that's when people start saying, that's what I want to do too. It builds momentum and that's what we need. Exactly right. The property sector is actually in a unique position to deliver this because we have um, 1.2 million people working in the sector. So we have direct influence over those people's lives. We can make sure that they, they feel safe on site, that we have underrepresented groups there, that we have access to the right facilities for people. We also have very far-reaching supply chains. So if uh, we, we can look into those supply chains and make sure that all the products that we're buying are produced ethically um, and that they don't involve instances of modern slavery, that's a, a huge chunk of our procurement um, that can be directed towards good outcomes for people, not just in Australia, but in overseas um, jurisdictions as well, where a lot of our products come from. So uh, we really have a lot to do in that space and progress is, is underway. That's awesome. Um, social sustainability is very much around, as you said, those amenities for people who are living in these places, but also ensuring that communities are livable, that they're sustainable, that they're accessible and inclusive. Those are all really key factors that make any place feel welcoming and that make any place feel like it's somewhere where you can thrive, whether you're someone who lives there or someone who's just passing through. I'd like to finish up by asking you your view on this. We know that the property sector is worth trillions of dollars in value to the Australian economy, yet we know that this gap between the richest and the poorest in our society is widening. Housing is becoming more unaffordable for the people who need it the most. What is your vision for a sustainable and equitable climate future and what changes might we need to see introduced to shift housing from an asset class to a human right? That's a, a really fundamental and, and really good question to be asking. I think there are so many um, dimensions to it, actually. The wealth aspect is an interesting one. There is obviously a, a disparity in ownership depending on the generation that you belong to in Australia. We see a, a lot of people from the baby boomer generation. I think they have about 80% ownership of homes in, in that generation. And that tends to drop off and, and you know, goes uh, right down when you get to Gen Alpha, I think is the, the latest one, which in, in some ways makes sense because they haven't had a, a chance to, to enter the workforce and to, to accumulate wealth like other Australians. 
That being said, 14.8 million Australians actually have a financial stake in the property sector through their superannuation. So there is a connection to, to a lot of people who don't necessarily own a home at this point, but who nonetheless are invested in the property sector and their retirement income will depend on the success of that sector. The cost of a home as well is, is often uh, considered in times of upfront cost of purchasing. Being a sustainability person at the Property Council, I think that we should focus more on the lifetime cost of a home. So recently there was a lot of public debate around the minimum energy performance standards in the National Construction Code. The Construction Code determines the parameters of housing that's built in Australia. And so recently, through the advocacy that we delivered, there was an increase from six to seven stars in the National Construction Code. This represents about a uh, 23 to 25% saving on energy costs throughout the lifetime of that house. So looking at simply the, the money that could have been saved by potentially putting in less insulation or something into that home compared to the lifetime cost of paying higher energy bills on that particular home, I think is the wrong way of looking at it. If you look at it in the lifetime of the home, then sustainability makes sense. Uh, having solar panels on the roof makes sense. All of those aspects are, are very good things to incorporate them. We need to consider increasing the supply of homes as well. As I mentioned at the, the beginning, we're expecting millions more people to join the Australian population as we approach 2050 and 2060. And we need to make sure that we have enough homes to accommodate these new people. We can't rely on, on the existing stock. We need to, to keep building. And that needs to be done in a, in a way that's sensitive to planetary boundaries. I think you've done a, an episode on that in a previous podcast on this, but we need to make sure that um, wherever possible, we do densification well in our cities. And I don't mean throwing up high rise at, at every street corner. I think if you do densify, you can, you can keep spaces for, for green areas and the like. And then we need to choose very carefully where we decide to build our new homes to make sure that we're not um, impeding on areas of a very high biodiversity value and the like. And then I think just the, the closing remark that I'll make on this one as well is the question of resilience. So we know we're in a changing climate at the moment, and we know that things are going to get more extreme as we go forward. And a lot of the homes that we're building today will still be standing in 60, 80 years time or are intended to be. So what do future climates look like? And how can we start building resilient homes that will be suitable in those climates at that time? We've already seen the bushfires come through. We saw flooding up in Lismore. We really need to decide whether we want to keep building homes in particular areas. So land use planning is one of the, the initial steps that we need to take. And then just tweaking our codes to make sure that people who do buy a home today and invest a lot of their money into it still have that asset when they approach retirement or the end of their work time. Thank you so much, Tim. That was very, very interesting. And I think there is so much opportunity and growth happening in property and ESG is certainly going to be at the forefront of that. So pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 